Um, how many of you like comeback stories? Okay, let me get a little more. How many Auburn fans love kick six? Okay, no, 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 this is church, guys. Don't go crazy, okay. <laughs> Some of us are frankly tired of watching it, all right? Uh, how many of you noticed driving in today that we misspelled Cadillac? I just want to assure you there was nothing purposeful about that. If you believe that, you believe anything, all right? So we love comebacks, and we're in the middle of, of, of a comeback story in Scripture. We're studying the book of 1 Peter. If you're new with us or are new to church, it's a, it's a great book, but what makes it even more significant is it's written by a guy named Simon Peter. And Simon was an early follower of Jesus. But there was a point in Simon's life where he just really disappointed himself and disappointed Jesus. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, there are people about to come and uh, uh, arrest him, and Jesus just asked his friends, please stay awake with me. Please stay. And Peter couldn't even stay awake. And then Jesus is put on a cross, and, and Peter gets too scared because he doesn't want to face suffering, so he, he runs. And, and so Peter has this incredible comeback story. Because the guy who denied Jesus, the guy who ran, is the guy who first preaches the gospel. And now we're in the middle of another book he wrote, 1 Peter chapter 1, and he's teaching us how to handle suffering. Last week we talked about suffering, and if you read the passage we're at today, it's followed by suffering, it's preceded by suffering, and now in the middle of this, Peter himself, I believe, is having a flashback. I, I can't prove this. But I think when he writes the words we're going to study today, he's remembering what happened in the garden. He's remembering what happened at the cross. And here's his command to us, arm yourself. Be prepared. Because Peter can remember that he wasn't prepared for the battle. And so today he tells us, you arm yourself. I didn't handle it very well. I want to teach you how to handle temptation well. Now, just look at the first verse, 1 Peter chapter 4, have your Bible or phone or your journal. I love this first verse. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, here's that word, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased to sin. Listen to what he's saying here. If you live like Jesus, you'll be treated like Jesus, you'll suffer like Jesus, so you better learn to think like Jesus. Guys, let's all be honest here. When it comes to spiritual warfare, the battleground is the mind. It's what happens between these two ears. You can come in here and look all religious and all together and everybody think you got it together, but in your mind, there's probably a battle going on. And Peter says, if you're going to win that battle, you can't think like you. Buddy can't think like buddy. We must think like Jesus. Now, the first part of the verse is pretty, pretty, evident. Arm yourselves with Jesus' way of thinking. Now, the second part's a little hard. For whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I've had a hard time dealing with that. What does that mean? Difficult to interpret. I think what he's saying is, guys, when you go through tough times, often God uses that to refine you and to purify you from your selfish sinfulness. Listen how the message translation puts that last part. Think of suffering as a weaning from the old sinful habit of always expecting to get your own way. You know what? We in life, we we love to get our own way. And yet, when we go through difficult time, we find out we don't always get our own way. 
And understand, guys, when it comes to sin, at core, sin is selfishness. It's the choice of what I want and I feel over what God wants and God feels. Now, here's what I'm seeing in these few verses we're going to read this morning. I'm seeing Peter giving us some winning attitudes. And the first one we see here in verse 1 is a teachable attitude toward Christ. Okay? Here's the question for us as we start today. Am I teachable? Am I moldable? You know, you just sang an incredible song. I will make room for you. Did you hear what you sang? I will make room for you to do whatever you want to do. Can I ask you, is that your mindset this morning? If you come here today with a mindset that says, I'm a disciple, you know, the best definition of a disciple is a learner, an imitator. So my question to you today is, do you come today as a learner? You're going to be really challenged in this message today. Can something be said today that would actually change the way you live on Monday? You see, if we're going to be different, we've got to have a teachable attitude toward Christ. We've got to pray what we just sang. I'm making room for you. You do. I'm, I, I, you know, you got it, Jesus, whatever you want to do. Now, let's go back and read verse 1 through 3 together because this is pretty challenging. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Here we go. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. One thing I I, I hear in these verses is I hear Peter echoing many of Jesus' prayers in the garden and on the cross. Not my will, but your will be done. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Gentiles is just a fancy word that means the non-believers. And here's how non-believers live. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Does that sound like it was written yesterday? It sounds like he's watching Entertainment Tonight or Access Hollywood, right? I mean, it's just all this stuff, you know, that people do. And especially, he's just really describing drunken parties. People do crazy stuff when they're drunk. They lose all inhibitions, and all these kind of things start happening. He's saying, that's the way you used to live, but you don't anymore. Now, the second attitude, and this is so key, is a militant attitude towards sin. You see, when we are suffering, when we're going through tough times, one of the easiest things to do is to compromise our standards. Why? Because if you're hurting and you're suffering, and life's not going your way, often we find escape. Maybe I can escape in drunkenness. Maybe I can escape just for a few moments in pornography. Maybe I can escape in some kind of addiction that, at least for a few moments, allows me to forget what's actually going on in my life. And and Peter says that's going to get you in a lot of trouble. And so you can't have a light view of sin. You must have a militant view of sin. Sunday night in this building, Rick Burgess spoke to all of our men, or, or some of our men, and um, I just got to tell you, I, 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 don't, I don't listen to the guy's radio show, not necessarily a big fan of that, but he probably preached one of the best and most convicting messages ever preached in this building. And guys, you'll get an email where you can watch it, it's on our website. 
But one thing he said there about sin that really hit me. He said, why do we sin? We make all kinds of excuses. I, I do that. And he said, here's the reason we sin is because we love the sin more than we love Jesus. Wow, that's strong. I want to just say, you know, just a little weak, a little slip up, you know. No, I love the sin more than I love Jesus. And guys, I, 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 I've had two conversations this week that really brought this to light to me, okay? One is with somebody you don't know, not around here, you'd have no idea who I'm talking about. It's the only reason I'll tell the story. But I'm having lunch with a guy I baptized years ago, and we're sort of talking about life. And, you know, I know he's not doing really good. I can look at his Facebook post and see that. But so we're having this conversation. In the middle of it, he's telling me about his new girlfriend. That's great. And then he tells me, he said, you know, I, I think soon, buddy, I'm going to ask her to marry me, and then we're going to move in together. I said, buddy, you're, you're, that's wrong. <laughs> And he looked at me and said, why? And I said, it's sinful. <laughs> really complicated. It's just, it's sinful. And yet, he knew that. He knew the scriptures. And yet, he didn't have a militant attitude towards sin. He was, he was okay with that. And then later in the week, I'm talking to a, a new brother here that's just so on fire for the Lord. And he's saying to me, you know, if you ever see me do anything that doesn't remind you of Jesus... This is what he said to me. I don't know, everybody, would you please call me out? I thought, wow. You know, and he says, um, and if you don't call me out about sin, that's what's going to hurt my feelings. You will never hurt my feelings by calling me out about sin, only if you don't. Is, is that, you ever heard that? And, and, and that's the kind of attitude Peter's trying to say. It, it's what Jesus said. You know, if your right hand's offending you, cut it off. If your eye, is offending you, calls you to sin, pluck it out. Now, Jesus isn't saying you destroy your body. What he is saying is sin is so destructive. Guys, don't think you're the one that's going to get by with it. It's going to destroy you. And Peter says, if it's in your life, which has been in all of our lives, do major surgery. So let's, let's keep going. Nice and talk about how our unbelieving friends react to us when we change like he's called us to change. With respect to this, they are surprised. You ever turn your life around and the people around you are like, what's happened to you, man? They are surprised. Uh, some translations say here, they think it's strange. They think it's strange you're not getting drunk with me more. They think it's strange you're not sleeping with me more. They think it's strange that you're not laughing at the same jokes. They're thinking, even some Christian people are going to think it's strange that you're on fire for Jesus and not lukewarm. They think it's strange. They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was first preached to those, even to those who are dead. Now, is he saying that Jesus goes back to dead people and preaches? I, I don't think so. Some people can interpret it that way. I think what he's saying is people who are now dead have already heard the gospel, okay? Now, listen to what he says after that. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead and those judged in the flesh the way people are. They might live in the spirit that God does. Now, you might be surprised by the point I'm about to make, but if you look closely, I think the text makes it. What attitude do we need? What's, we need a patient attitude toward the lost. Okay? What Peter is saying here is they are going to be surprised that you've changed. And, you know, I'm, I'm talking to some people I know in the audience today that you're brand-new Christians, and you, you face it 
the most because your old friends you've always hung out with, they might actually need to be former friends for a while, are going to really question you why you're so different. I know I'm talking to some people here that are in our RSVP ministry, and a lot of people may wonder why you're not doing the things you were doing before, and they're going to try to get you to go back to your old habits. A lot of our teenagers and college students, when your life really changes, you're going to be questioned about it. Now, here's what Peter's saying, though. We don't become judgmental toward people who don't know Jesus. Here's what he's assuring you, guys. You don't go judge the non-believer. Why do you not do that? Because, guys, in the long run, guess what? That's up to God. God's going God's to judge the non-believer. That's one of the biggest mistakes I see us as Christians make. I've made it myself, is when we decide we're the Jesus police. You know what I'm talking about? And if you're at work and somebody drops a cuss word, I think it's my job to correct them. Or if in my neighborhood somebody does something I think is wrong, I think it's my job to go, that was sinful. Guys, hold on with me for a second. Why in the world should we expect unbelievers to live like believers? That's a bad expectation. And so Peter says, instead of you going around judging them, would you back off and love them? Don't judge them. Because we're doing no good by being the, the Jesus police in our culture. Now, just, just look at that for a second. They're going to be judged. not our job to judge. But just, just think about the last two points we made, okay? Stay, stay with me here. Number two was a militant attitude towards sin. Number three is a patient attitude toward the loss. Now, he, here's our temptation as Christian people. It's to swap those two is to invert them. And so, in other words, what I might do, I'm tempted to do it, you're tempted to do it, is to have a light view of my own sin. To start going, you know, I mean, you know, I got grace, God didn't really mean this. And, you know, and so, you know, I'll let myself get by with the things I'm doing because, you know, I understand why I'm doing it and the circumstances. And so, if we're not careful, we do the exact opposite of what Peter says. And I develop a light attitude toward sin. And then I, I, I develop a harsh attitude toward lost people. That's why I just cringe at some of our Facebook posts and Instagram posts. They just, uh, we're just criticizing culture. That's not our job. Our job is to love people that are lost, and our job is to evaluate our own life. Don't mess that up, because that's what kills the cause of Christianity in our country. We need to do everything we can to be like Jesus. We need the attitude of my friend that says, if you see anything in me like Jesus, please call me out. But on the other hand, what I must do is build bridges with people who don't know Jesus so they see him in my life, and then they're going to want to know about him. Thank you. Amen. Anybody else want to say amen? Boy, you guys are really fired up today. Okay, let's go on. Let's go on to, to verse 7, all right? This, this is great stuff. Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Attitude number four, an expected attitude toward Jesus' coming. And if we'd gotten up at the beginning of the service today and someone had said, buddy's preaching on the second coming, our normal reaction is, oh, my goodness, he's bringing the hammer down. Guys, in the first century, that was not their reaction. The, the greatest, most enjoyable thing for the preacher to preach on would be Jesus is coming back and you're not going to have to live in this mess much longer. 
And so we need to develop this expected attitude toward Jesus coming back. He says, you need to be sober-minded. That, that, that literally means you need to be sane. Guys, insanity is when you don't see things the way they really are. To be sane is to go, gosh, I understand Jesus. I understand heaven. I understand hell. I understand eternity. And I'm going to live my life soberly. And guys, the proof of a sober life is I'm going to pray fervently. So you know if you're really sober about the second coming, what's your prayer life like? Now let's keep finished. We'll finish, finish up these verses, verses 8 through 11. Now, guys, I, I love Peter because you've got to understand as you're reading Peter's writing, he's just an old fisherman. Peter's not near the writer the apostle Paul was. Paul was a theologian. Paul's a great writer. Peter's just an old fisherman who calls it like it is. And so he's about to give us some, some commands. Look at, look at verse um, verse. Uh, Eight, above all, that's pretty big, you're about to say something, above all, um, you know, I think he's saying this is really important. This is more important than anything I've said to you guys. Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God, good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And here's the goal. In order that everything God may be, in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, number attitude number five. A loving attitude toward God's family. Now here, here's what Peter says. I hope you paid it. I hope those words got your attention. I think they're meant to get your attention. Above all, above everything I've said, this is what I want you to understand. You got to love each other. Guys, I think Peter is remembering what Jesus said when a dude walked up to Jesus and said, Tell me the greatest commandments. And Jesus said, Let me give them to you. Number one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Number two is to love your neighbor as yourself. It's the way we love God and it's the way we love each other. And so he's saying, We got to have a loving attitude toward God's family. Stay with me for a second here. I got to ask you a pretty good question. Who in this church family is experiencing your love? You, you see, Peter said, you be expressive in this love. So I'm asking you guys, because this church is not going to mean much to you until you get out of yourself. Too many of us come here, oh, what do they do for me? Do I like that? Not like that. I mean, who talked to me? Who didn't talk to me? Who's loved on me? Who's... No, 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 no. Your life will be miserable that way. When you finally go, you know what? I'm here to love on other people. And I'm asking you this morning, can you name someone in this church family that you are loving to such a point that they know you're loving them? We are so, I don't understand it about us. I'm Sometimes we're so chintzy about expressing our love. There's probably someone sitting in here right now that you have a great appreciation for. You love. They've been an example in your life. They've cared about you. Have you ever told them that you love them? Say it. So that gets us to these, what I call family orders, Peter's practical point. Here's four practical points I want to leave you with. First of all, show deep love. The, the word there was earnestly. Some translations say fervently. Some say passionately. My friends, our love for each other needs to be energetic. No one should walk in here guessing whether we really care about them or not. Say it. Number two, be forgiving. Peter says something really interesting here. He says, love covers a multitude of sins. We understand that. If you really love somebody, normally it's easy to forgive them. 
And so I think he's saying, guys, is, you know, when we really love each other and, and I mess up or you mess up because we both are messed up sometimes and, and I see it or you see it or we confess it, it should be no problem for me because I really love you to forgive you. But I think there's also another meaning here is that love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, when, when someone sins, we don't relish in it, we don't spread it, we don't talk about it. There's an incredible story in the Old Testament that you might not think about in light of this, but it really hits me. One of the great men of the Old Testament was Noah. And, and Noah, like all of us, could sin. And one day, Noah got drunk. And he's laying in his tent, uncovered, naked. His son Ham sees it and goes to tell the rest of the family. Guys, you know, we'll leave dad. He's over here soused and naked. Or what do we say in the South? Naked. All right? Now, here's the cool thing. Ham didn't get it right. And, of course, if you had your name Ham, you wouldn't get it right, right? But the two brothers said, no, 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 we're not doing this to our dad. We love him too much. They went in the tent and they covered him up. And that's what we do for each other. When you see me fall or I see you fall and we're honest about it, because here's what we do is we, we don't go spread it. We don't go talk about it. We say, you know what, love covers a multitude of sins. So we're forgiving. And then here's a really strong command here is about hospitality is to open your homes. Guys, let's be honest just for a moment here. Hospitality is almost a lost art. People used to, decades ago, everybody's having people in their home. And, and we don't do as much of that probably as we used to, and I understand that. But I also understand the power of opening your home. Be, be honest with me here. The early church would have never survived without hospitality. You say, well, why is that? Number one, they didn't have hotels back then. They didn't have motels. They didn't have either. So, so what would happen was when missionaries were preaching the gospel, the only way they could survive is for someone to open their home to them and let them stay there. And that happened all the time. You know, we've got a great opportunity right now Today's the first Sunday that the Brindleys are back with us after what's happened to them overseas, and we're just thrilled they're here. And guys, what we want to do as a church is we want to take care of them as they get past what's happened. We want to offer great hospitality. But the second reason that hospitality was such a big deal in the beginning of the church, uh, let me illustrate it this way. I read a book years ago. I can't even remember the, the title of the book, but I remember the title of the first chapter. Here's what it was called, The Disastrous Success of A.D. 313. That's weird. The Disastrous Success of A.D. 313. You know what happened in A.D. 313? Constantine, the Roman emperor, became a Christian, and he built the first what? Church buildings. And what the author was saying is the church was so successful when they could build buildings like this, but in some ways it was a disaster. Why was it a disaster? Because the church met, moved from the intimate, open setting of meeting in someone's home to a setting like this where we look at the back of each other's heads. And guys, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this or anything wrong with church buildings, but I'm telling you, if that's all we do, we're missing something. We're missing something big. Church is not supposed to be a show. It's supposed to be a family. And that's why, guys, it's so important that we open our homes to one another. 
One of our shepherds' wife, Linda Terrell, I've heard her say this for decades. She said, when someone comes into your home and they put their feet under your dining room table, something miraculous happens. I believe that. And guys, we make all kinds of, my home's not big enough, not nice enough, not clean enough. The truth is, most of us don't care. But I'm telling you, when you're a new member somewhere or you're a member and someone opens their home to you, it makes an incredible difference. And that's why, you know, we talk so much. I know you're tired of me talking about this, but I got to. That's why we talk so much about our small group, life group ministry. Because that's the place where we probably open our homes more than any other place. And, and, and so it's in that place where, where people get to experience that warmth and that love. But one other order. He says, everyone needs to serve. If you have a gift, use it to serve one another. Now, please mark this down. On these last two, open your homes and use your gift. I will say this to you. I want you to listen to me. Nothing you possess is your own. Your house is not yours. You've been given that house by God to be used by God. Your gifts and talents are not yours. They've been given by God. They're not just about you making money. If you're using your gifts and talents at your work to make money, and yet you refuse to use your gifts and talents in your church to serve God, you're making a big mistake. Because that's what they're, they're God's. And guys, let me just talk a minute about what's going on in our church right now. Uh, and guys, I, I know I'm coming across pretty hard today, and I'm, I'm not coming across hard because I, I'm trying to be harsh. I'm coming across hard because, man, I'm excited about what God is doing. And I'm super thrilled of what we could all do together. And guys, there, there's, I mean, I've been here a long time. There's more going on at Landmark right now than I can ever remember. There's all kinds of new initiatives. We're about to send off 100 of our people to Camp Refuge. That only started a couple years ago. You saw a couple weeks ago, we're starting this marriage enrichment groups. That's a new thing. We're opening up the Life Center to be used more and more. You know, Halcyon Elementary, after COVID, is finally opened back up for us to go in there and mentor and to help. I mean, there are, whoa, there are so many opportunities. Men's ministry is doing more right now than it's ever done. Women's ministry is about to crank it up themselves. Guys, there are so many awesome opportunities. But here's where we could be in trouble, my friends, is if um, we call upon the same 100 or 200 people to do it. Would you listen to me? I'm talking to you right now. We need you. We cannot wear out the same people doing everything that goes on this church. We'll be a disaster. But if every one of us would step up and do something for God, there's no telling what could happen in this place. Now, let me back up one more time. Just look at my list again. I want to make one more point about small groups. All of those things, no, go, go, go back, go back, go back, go back. Well, maybe you don't like that point. Thank you. Okay, let's, let's, let's go back. Give me my four. All of those things happen best in a small group. Just the truth. So, here's what Peter says to us. You need to arm yourselves. Let's close out here. What's he saying, guys? Here's the point. You don't arm yourself once you're out there in the battle. You arm yourself before you get in the battle, okay? And so, guys, what's happening is some of us, while we're not being very successful, we're not very joyful, is because we're walking out of here without, first of all, putting on the armor, and, and, and Peter said, here's some attitude parts of the armor. Let's go back. Now go to that next slide. Here's the five things we've talked about today, okay? 
And I want you right now, we're going to deal with this a little bit more in prayer. But first of all, when you look at those, let's have an attitude check, okay? You ever, you ever been in a situation where someone needed to say, okay, bud, it's time you checked your attitude. <laughs> your attitude is not so good. Let, let's, let, let's, let's look at that for a moment. Here's our time as a church for an attitude check. Which of those, I want you to pick at least one, which of those five areas, teachable attitude toward Christ, militant attitude toward sin, patient attitude toward the lost, expectant attitude toward Jesus' coming, loving attitude toward God's family, which of these do you need to adjust? Because, guys, that's why Peter wrote this book. He wrote this book to go, you know, guys, I screwed up really bad before, and yet God was able to change me. I had an attitude adjustment. I decided I couldn't have Peter's attitude anymore. I needed to have Jesus' attitude. And my challenge to you and I today is for us to have an attitude adjustment so that when we walk out of here, we are armed. I want you right now, before you even walk out of here, to be armed to go represent Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what would happen if we become more than a church, more than a place you just worship, more than a place just to show up a couple weeks, if we became the very army of God? One of my favorite stories from history is uh, Napoleon. He had, you know, he had gone into Russia and tried to conquer Russia, but like so many armies, the winter had destroyed him, and he's marching back to France with what's remained of his army, and things don't look too good. And so Napoleon gathers all his remaining troops. He lines them up on a straight line, and he says these words to them. Guys, things are not looking good. You stick with me. I'm not, I can't promise you we're going to win. And so before we keep fighting, I want to give you all an opportunity. If, if, if you don't want to fight, you don't have to. But, but I'm about to turn my back to you. And when I turn my back, if you want to keep fighting side by side with me in this battle, would you please take a step forward? So Napoleon turns his back. He stays there for a minute. And then he turns around. And he looks. And the line is still just straight. And he begins to shake his head and he begins to mumble, I understand, I understand. You, you don't, I, mean, I understand you don't want to fight. I, I, it's, it's all right. And then he's about to walk away and he's walking away. And one of his troops says, General, General, don't, don't walk away. You didn't get it right. You didn't see it right. The truth is we all stepped forward. And guys, what we need as a church is for all of us, you, me, all of us to step forward. And this morning we're about to sing. If you need to step forward and rededicate your life to Jesus, if you're ready to follow Jesus and meet him in baptism, if you just need the prayers of this church about one of your attitudes, I'm going to invite you to come and just confess those things and share those things so we as a family can be the army of God. If you need to come, if you need to be the one who steps forward, come right now while we stand and sing.